Other Josh Cohen. That felt good. In fact, for the next month and a half, every time I saw something I wanted, I wrote to Josh. Dear Josh, all my friends are walking down the aisle. Three more this year. Paying for the tux is gonna take a while. Fifty bucks is for the Britannia. You've got cash and comfort, which is just absurd. Josh Cohen. These letters are really good. Hello and welcome to Broadway Radios. This week on Broadway for Sunday, March 17, 2019, St. Patrick's Day. My name is James Marino, and on the broadcast today we have Peter O'Felicia and Michael O'Portantier. <laughs> Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. Everywhere, His play God Shows Up begins performances on April 6, 2019 at the Actors Temple Theater on 47th Street with an opening night of May 13th. Congratulations, Peter. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Peter, congratulations, and uh, excited when we saw the uh, press release come across uh, the transom uh, this uh, this week. Yeah, um, so we are going to move there. Admittedly, we're doing three performances a week, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. That's it. However, you know, a lot of people don't have anything to do on Monday nights, so um, see you at the Actress Temple. Excellent. So also with us is Michael Portant here. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. And I, I assume that uh, par part of the reason for the schedule, that schedule, Peter, is the same as the 92nd Street Y, uh, the Sabbath. Must yeah, be. <laughs> I would think so. Yeah, but uh, I don't. I don't think it uh, extends to Monday. But anyway, uh, <laughs> whatever the case, uh, I'm just glad to have the three performances a week. I think it's quite nice, and God bless uh, Eric Krebs for making it happen. So uh, uh, he's been a terrific producer in the sense that uh, occasionally he'll say to me, "You know, it would be a good idea," and I'll say, "No, it isn't." He'll say, "Okay," and really, you know, a lot of producers don't do that. So God love him. Monday is the Broadway Sabbath. It is the seventh day of rest. So. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Not for my cast. Anyway. No, absolutely. So uh, it is St. Patrick's Day. What, uh, what kind of uh, Broadway connection do we have with St. Patrick's Day? Can we think of anything? Well, I know it's mentioned in the piano lesson song in The Music Man, and of course The Music Man was quite in the news this week, uh, thanks to Hugh Jackman saying he's coming back and doing it, and um, that'll be terrific, I assume. There's also indications Laura Osnes is going to be doing it too. So, But neither one of them sings St. Patrick's in that uh, show. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's sung by Mrs. Peru, Marion's mother. Um, <laughs> Though, you know, Mother McCree um, is a song that uh, is alluded to in uh, both Little Me and um, and in Do Re Mi, ironically enough. So um, I guess that's the closest I can think of that has any Irish connections, aside, of course, from musicals like Finian's Rainbow and Donnybrook, uh, both of whom, which I'm very fond of. But um, I can't think of anything that really mentions St. Patrick's Day. Michael, um, am I missing something? 
Oh well, just in Mame, uh, in the first scene, or uh, the second scene, when when uh, Patrick is brought to meet his auntie Mame uh, for the first time, uh, she's in the middle of this wild celebration at her Beekman Place apartment with all her colorful friends, and somebody says, "Mame, what are we celebrating?" And she basically says, "It's today." But then she meets Patrick, and then by the end of that that scene, she says, uh, "She says to her friends, it is a holiday. It's Patrick's day." Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so uh, you mentioned the Music Man. That uh, I mean, it's such an announcement. I mean, no date put around it, but you know, we're thinking well into 2020 before we get a chance of seeing that. Oh, so. there is a date around it. There is a date. What there is an op- There is an opening, beginning of previews, and an opening night listed in the press release that I so, got. So therefore, they're not going out of town. Well, I mean, uh, it didn't actually say that. It just gave uh-huh. the, the Broadway preview start and then the opening night. And I don't have it in front of me. Okay, all right. Yeah, because of course, how many previews that would make uh, some sort of indication there, whether they're staying in town or whether they're uh, going out of town. Um, but of course, Dolly didn't go out of town. So, uh, And of course, the same producer, Scott Rudin. So it probably will follow the same template. And for that matter, too, we are dealing with an established show. Right. So it's, it's not going to be any tinkering or anything. Um I think the Meredith Wilson estate, in fact, is is quite uh, stringent on any changes. Um, and you may have noticed the last revival, which I thought was terrific, um, <clears throat> called the Meredith Wilson's The Music Man. I mean, that was the official title. So, uh, so I have a feeling it's going to be pretty sacrosanct. I see it in the press release. It says Meredith Wilson's quintessential Broadway musical comedy, The Music Man. Uh, mm. I'm not sure how they're going to fit that on a marquee, but Michael is correct. It <laughs> says Wednesday, September 9th, 2020, uh, previews and opening night is October 22nd at a Schubert Theater to be announced. There's uh, – hmm. Okay. Uh, oh, and also, I may be wrong, but I, I had heard Laura Osnes, as you apparently have heard, but then I heard s- somewhere that she said that she was the one who put it out there. Yeah, she was. She, uh, she Every time that there's a, uh, a show that begins an, at home, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, so, it worked for Laura Benanti. In yeah, a way, indeed, right? indeed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Uh, who I saw do my fair lady, by the way, and she's terrific in it, uh, especially in the first scene uh, where uh, Higgins is castigating her, and you know she gets on her high horse uh, and acts like uh, he's he's an idiot. But as time goes on, as he keeps talking, singing um, or talking, depending on how you uh, view it, um, look at her face, watch her. She really mm-hmm. does an amazing thing with her face, where she really says, "My God, this guy has a point. Oh my God, what am I going to do though? I can never get out of this situation." Well, maybe I can. All that is there, and that's really quite good. So she's uh, quite, quite fine in the role. I'm very uh, pleased to have seen her, and um, I wish her well. You know, I noticed some uh, a little thing that she did in that scene that was I thought was so brilliant. You know, we're always told that the role of Eliza in My Fair Lady is a voice killer because aside from everything else, uh, you know, the, the the vocal range is is very wide. But then also the 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 actress needs to go from like screaming in that that Cockney guttural. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. things like that mm-hmm. that hurt the voice and then go to sing in, in pure soprano. But so if you can kind of um, 
work on those and and uh, make them less uh, less damaging. That's a that's something you can really do for yourself. And there's the famous line where uh, Higgins turns to Eliza at the at the beginning and he's berating her and he says, uh, "Stop crooning like a bilious pigeon." And I think the the line that's written for her to come back with is. But instead, Laura Benanti imitated a bilious pigeon, and she went, (laughs) (laughs) and it didn't hurt her voice, and it got a huge laugh, and I thought, that is a brilliant actress. Uh, By the way, for that matter, um, Without You, which is usually sung-sung, here is pretty much spoken-sung, so that may help her as well, and it's very effectively done. So uh, again, if you haven't seen My Fair Lady, by all means, go. All right. Uh, also, I'd like to thank you both for your dedication to showing up on a Sunday morning to record because this morning is the New York City Half Marathon. I know that you were both planning on running it, mm-hmm. so Absolutely. I do appreciate you being here. As we all know, Pete, as we all know, Peter, you are a superhero to most, but you also got over to the second stage uh, Tony Kaiser Theater to see superheroes. So tell us about uh, what you thought. Well, this has a a very good pedigree because John Logan, uh, the Tony-winning playwright for Red, and Tom Kipp, the Tony and Pulitzer Prize winner for Next to Normal, and before people say, wait, wait, they didn't win the Tony, um, they did, in fact, for this score, not for Best Musical, I'll grant you, but still that counts, uh, and uh, for Next to Normal, and then Jason Moore, who directed Avenue Q. So um, we had pretty high hopes for this, and uh, it is an original musical, so that's very nice to see as well. And for a while... Uh, The audience seems to enjoy this show um, quite a bit because it deals with um, dating and first dating and all that goes with that. And all of us can identify with that because here's Charlotte, played by uh, Kate Baldwin, and Jim, played by Bryce Pinkham, who live in the same building. Now, of course, one of the New York City's unwritten rules is if you live in the same building, do not date anyone in the same building because if it doesn't work out, you're going to have to see that person in the elevator as long as your lease is uh, still in effect. But they're going to buck the odds there. One of the things that's hard to understand is why Charlotte would be interested in Jim because he is so moody um, he's so um, introspective he does he has his cards extraordinarily close to his vest probably they've been um, sewn inside him so he's not much of a conversationalist and um, it may be another example of how hard it is uh, for straight women to find straight men in New York because I have no idea why she's so interested in this guy so that's a bit of a problem Um, a bigger problem comes why we find out why he um, indeed does not talk very much and uh, why he seems so extraordinarily moody that comes at the end of the first act and that's when the laughter stopped it's not a case that uh, the show turned terribly serious Um, it did a little but uh, what happens at the end of the first act which I'm not going to remotely give away is something that's extraordinarily hard to believe um, extraordinarily hard to believe. So, um, so that's where the show seems to um, go off the rails and into outer space. In fact, because uh, it goes that far off. Now, I should mention that the real character in the show, who really counts, um, is um, Charlotte's son, whose name is Simon. Now, the thing about Simon is that um, he was in a car driving with his father, 
And unfortunately, there was an accident and the father was killed. Now, that's pretty traumatic um, <clears throat> to watch your father die while you're sitting right next to him. That was two years ago to the day um, that this show starts. And, um, well, you know, the kid is not over it, and he's certainly entitled to uh, mourn at his own time. But I don't understand why we have a song where Charlotte sings, What Happened to My Boy? What happened to his smile? When I think the answer is pretty clear. I mean, you watch your father get killed and you ain't going to smile for a while. So uh, somebody might say, well, it's been two years. He should be over it by now. But, you know, uh, not everybody mourns and gets over it in the same length of time. So so that's a problem as well. I've never seen a musical that, that um, <laughs> involves characters who come in and are established early on as characters who are completely forgotten about as the time goes on. And one of them is Vic, the landlord, played by Tom Sesma. At the beginning of the show, there he is, and he's reading comic books. Now, Simon loves comic books as well, but Simon is a teenager. Frankly, I think he's even a little too old for comic books, but that's another story. Um, but Tom Sesma, um, playing Vic, uh, reads comic books, though he claims that he doesn't read them for the uh, content but for the ads in the back of the book uh for sea monkeys uh specifically which by the way because he says superheroes aren't real but the ads are real well in fact sea monkeys are really shrimp and i mean so and that's another story anyway he's forgotten about as time goes on well um needless to say uh simon is interested in a girl um a girl named v v e uh who's very concerned about the environment and social causes and all that and he offers to help her with posters and things like that because he's an excellent artist. He usually draws superheroes, but, you know, for her, he'll uh, do whatever needs to be done. And um, we see what's coming, I'm sorry to say, and that is the fact that she's very interested in him as an artist while he's interested in her romantically. And we do have a feeling that's not going to work out. But here's what happens. Um, uh, I mentioned another character who disappears. Well, in comes Dwayne, who is her old boyfriend. She just broke up with him. And, um, and he's there saying, why did you break up with me? You know, that type of stuff, a real confrontation. And Simon has a song, an introspective song while they're fighting about the fact like I should get in there. I should help her. I should get him away. Um, however, he's bigger and stronger than I am, and he'll beat me into the ground like a tent stake. So, I mean, as a result, um, I just don't have the nerve to do it. So, anyway, eventually the song ends, and she tells off Dwayne, uh, tells him off in no uncertain terms, finger to the chest type thing, get, get away from me, all that kind of stuff. And he goes away, and Simon says, look, she can, look at that. She can do it, and I can't. Well, there's a big difference between a girl telling off a guy and a guy telling off a guy, um, at least theoretically and for the most part throughout history. When uh, that happens, guys do not beat up girls. I mean, you know, God knows, it, um, unfortunately, it does happen. But for the most part, it really doesn't. So there's no real comparison because if indeed he came and threatened Dwayne uh, or said get away from it, it's very possible that Dwayne would have thrown a punch. So the situations are not equal. Um, uh, but anyway, what happens at the end of the first act is truly unbelievable. And I mean that more literally than I have ever meant anything, even though more literally is not an expression that should be used in English. But in this case, I'm going to use it. So um, so that gets a little strange and the laughter stopped and the enjoyment stopped and all that goes with that. Uh, I will say that at, by the 
last half hour, the dialogue seemed very scattershot to me that everybody was saying things just to finish the show, that um, there was really no rhyme or reason to what uh, some people were saying. And uh, the focus of the show was a little strange. I think I finally zeroed in on what they were talking about, but I'm not 100% sure that I did. Um, so, so Superhero does get off to a, a pretty good start um, and an enjoyable start, um, but by the end, it certainly isn't super. This is interesting. Uh, Jan Simpson and I talked about the show last week, I think, and we, uh, uh, Peter, today uh, avoided what I guess many people would consider a huge spoiler, but yeah. and I did not. And the reason I did not uh, is because the way I see it, there's something hap- that happens absolutely within the first like 15 minutes of the show that to me, uh, you know, tips us off to what's going to happen at the end of act one. Uh, You're talking about the hydrant? Yes. Yeah. Uh Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, So uh, more than tips us off to what's going to happen at the end of act one. So that's interesting how people, you know, I've come up uh, against this quite a bit lately that uh, what some people consider to be huge spoilers, other people, uh, don't agree. And then, you know, sometimes it can make it difficult in discussing shows and reviewing them. So that's just something to keep in mind that, we're not always going to make people happy in that respect. And, you know, some, some people just like to err on the side of caution. And I guess that, that, you know, (laughs) that's what Peter tends to do. Uh, But I completely agree about the ex-boyfriend or uh, because I, you know, in fact, I even turned to um, my friend after the show and I said, you know, I'll bet that guy is there basically to function as the understudy. (laughs) Ah, ah, yeah. Because he had so little to do. Yeah, so little indeed. Kyle MacArthur, by the way, is the actor who plays Simon, and he's very, very good. He's a young man himself. Um, he's about, I, I think, about nineteen or so, and um, I think he's Simon is supposed to be younger, but still, uh, he passes muster, and he really does a good job. He, he really, there's this point where he has to hold center stage, and sing a, a an aria, and he really does it extraordinarily well. So, um, I, I do want to appreciate uh, Kyle MacArthur uh, in what I believe is his first major role. Yes. Okay, so that is Superhero at Second Stage. It's been extended through March 31st, uh, and you can check that out in the show notes. Uh, next up, Michael and I got a chance to see the other Josh Cohn down at the Westside Theater. So, Michael, why don't you start us off with that? Well, Peter has been telling us about this show for, oh, gosh, well over a year, I'm sure. Uh, when was it first at Paper Mill? Uh, it was, oh, a long time ago. Um, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, but it, uh, yes, I've seen it three times uh, in uh, when it was downtown at Paper Mill and now uptown. Uh, and whereas this is my very first time seeing it, just for whatever reason, I didn't catch up with it. And I'm so glad I did. I thought it was completely delightful. I think it's, uh, it's also the perfect example of uh, a kind of show that there might be more of if Off-Broadway were still thriving. Yeah. Yeah. In, the, in the way that it used to be. Yeah. Uh, but this is just great. This is an example of that. If you can get to it uh, before it, it, it finally is closing, uh, I believe April 7th. Um, uh, but it's at the West Side Theater, you know, which is this nice, centrally located, uh, perfect size off-Broadway theater uh, on, on 43rd Street. I did have a complaint that I never noticed before. That those seats are awfully narrow. <laughs> um, and uh, I don't usually notice that, so I guess they must be really exceptionally so. Uh, uh, just something to keep in mind. I don't know if it varies in different parts of the house. But um, 
whatever complaints I had with the with the seats themselves, I, I really enjoyed the show, which is this very, very clever story about this, I guess you would say schlub <laughs> named mm-hmm. Josh Cohen, uh, this kind of sad sack guy who's not doing well in the romance department or anything else. And then his apartment gets robbed and then he suddenly uh, receives in the mail a check for a very large amount of money, uh, just a check, no note. And uh, so the show is about what happens as he pursues figuring out what that is all about. And I really, I really think it was very clever. I, um, one, one interesting thing about it, uh, that I did not know. I mean, I'm sure that you must've said this a while ago, Peter, but I had forgotten because we hadn't talked about it in so long is that, um, so there are actually, uh, two Josh Cohen's in, in the show. Uh, but one of them only appears as a a voice on the phone. Mm -hmm. Uh, and yet there are, there are two other Josh Cohen's. There are two actors <laughs> play, playing the other. There are two actors playing one of one of the Josh Cohen's uh, uh, on stage at all times. There's the narrator Josh, as he's called, and then Josh Cohen. Uh, so I think I, I wonder why uh, exactly the creators decided to do that. And I think one reason may be just uh, to make it a little easier um, for him to share his his thoughts. And also it makes for uh, some really, really great two-part harmony <laughs> uh, when these guys mm-hmm. sing together, which they do frequently. Um, the and, and then the other part of the conceit uh, that goes into all that is that uh, this show is performed by a company of uh, people who not only sing uh, Dan sing, act, and move well, but they also play instruments. So uh, they they double on various instruments as they go in and out, uh, playing the roles. And sometimes they're playing uh, guitar or keyboard or whatever or drums while they're while they're uh, acting roles in the show. Um, so I I think it was really interesting the way that the whole concept came about because it could have been done. More uh, traditionally, I, I guess, w- without singer musicians and with only one person playing Josh Cohen, uh, I, I wonder if that changed during development or if that w- that concept was there from the very beginning. I, I suppose we could ask uh, David Rossmore or David or Steve Rosen, um, or we could ask Hunter Foster, who directed the show. So we reviewed um, the other Josh Cohen. Uh, from Paper Mill in March of 2014. Wow. Okay. Uh, and uh, as I recall, I'm not 100% sure, but I don't recall them playing their own instruments at Paper Mill. I'm not, I'm not, I don't recall totally. I'd have to go oh. back and. Uh, well, that's, I, th- I all think right. they did. Did they? Mm-hmm. Peter? I think so. I think okay. So. So I have to jump in my time machine and go back and visit that. But uh, I really enjoyed it at Paper Mill, and I was I was excited to see that it, it's playing at the West Side uh, downstairs. And um, I had a, a totally different experience than I had at Paper Mill, although both were very good. Uh, you know, Paper Mill is so huge, and, mm-hmm. and the West Side is so intimate. And I kept on thinking to myself, the way that they have pulled this off at the West Side makes it seem like it's uh, – I, I can't imagine that they are producing it at the West Side to make money. Uh, it mm. seems like it's too small of a theater and too big of a cast to uh, 
to make money there, but I think that it can now say played off Broadway in New York and the off Broadway smash hit and get licensed all over the world now, um, which I I can see lots of theater companies uh, doing this. And it doesn't have to be that the actors play their instruments, but um, uh, I think this was a really fun evening, and I think that this is going to show up uh, in a lot of theaters around the country, so folks listening to this far and wide are going to be able to see lots of different productions of it. Uh, Do we know anything about licensing uh, through MTI, or is it... uh, No, I haven't heard anything about MTI, but I I will say that I I agree with you uh, that this will show up in a lot of theaters, because this is a small musical, and people in regional theaters, artists, directors, like to put musicals on their schedule, and yet don't want to break the bank so yeah. uh so yeah it's it's true that this will have a, a, an afterlife and uh yeah it's it's a miracle that anybody ever made any money from off broadway we were talking the other night about a musical um version of um Kose van Kute, uh that was done in 1968 called up eden and um i had gone to a backers audition for it and i really liked what i heard not enough to put money in i didn't think it was going to go and it didn't it only lasted a week but i did go to what was supposed to be the first preview uh, and, uh, when I got there, they said, look, um, we're just not ready. So, uh, we're going to give you your money back. And I said, uh, well, can I go and see the show anyway? Um, are you doing a dress rehearsal? They said, yeah, yeah, go ahead in. I mean, since you were so good to send a mail order in. So they gave me back my $4 and that's uh, how much a ticket was for a preview, um, uh, off Broadway in 1968, $4. Um, I don't know what the actual ticket was, but I don't think it, uh, it, I couldn't have even been doubled that. And yet, you know, I mean, that's what off Broadway was charging really tiny, tiny prices. And I don't know how they did it. The example I always go to is Little Women on Broadway. Um, There was a musical in 1964 called Joe Off-Broadway, you know, named after one of the characters in Little Women. And good Lord, there were like 22 people in the cast. And I think on Broadway, there were maybe 11, you know, half as many. And uh, how did they make money in those days? It just makes no sense to me, let alone, it was at the Orpheum where Stomp has now been known forever. But um, I don't even know what they did for dressing rooms. I can't imagine. Mm. So anyway, uh, it's a miracle that off-Broadway, commercial off-Broadway lasted as long as it did. And it really was only from about 55 to 75 that that really was happening as a commercial entity. So, uh, so, uh, and I miss those. Um, startup productions that um, didn't have the regional theaters behind them. I'm, nothing against them, but yeah. uh, but it was fun just to see um, these little musicals crop up, and uh, usually with xylophones and, <laughs> and <laughs> orchestration. Um, so I miss them. Well, part of the short answer for how that happened, I, I assume, is that people got paid almost nothing. Yeah, they must have, uh, and yet they continued to do it, um, and for the longest time. I mean, twenty years. Uh, well, it was, it was I a mean, bit of, it, yeah. it it was so much less expensive. That rent was so much less expensive yeah. in New York than it is these sure. days. You know, sure. that that that's really driving a lot of that's it. Yeah. a lot of issues right now. Yes. Uh, did you guys hear about the very tangential Bill De Blasio or Andrew Cuomo's plan or something like that to? Uh, tax people who have places in New York that do not live in New York. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, uh, a very mm-hmm. interesting plan because that's certainly what has pushed rents up through the roof. Uh, and, you know, bars, restaurants, and uh, other businesses and people who live in Manhattan just can't afford to live in Manhattan anymore. It's and the drama bookshop. And the drama bookshop. With, uh, <laughs> being saved by... Uh, Lynn Manuel and company. So, uh, yeah. 
All right. So that is The Other Josh Cohn at the Westside Theater. It's playing through April 7th, so get to see it. What a wonderful cast. Wonderfully, very, very funny, talented cast. Um, and you'll be sad if you miss it. Michael and Peter both got a chance to see The Cake by Becca Brunstetter at the Manhattan Theater Club. So, Peter, why don't you start us off with that? Yeah, um, Becca Bronstetter, one of our um, leading um, playwrights uh, who's had a lot of work in TV but um, certainly never abandons theater, has written a play that the Manhattan Theater Club is doing now. And um, the cake is uh, essentially about a cake, but it's more about uh, a woman in North Carolina. Uh, her name is Stella, and she's wonderfully played by Deborah Jo Rupp, uh, who has a cake shop and um, does a nice business. Um, everything's fine. Um, she has a goddaughter, too, uh, whom she's, of course, very fond of. Um, but Jen, the uh, granddaughter, uh, is gay, and uh, that's never come up. And now she wants to get married, and she expects that um, Della will make the cake for the wedding. Now... In other plays, what would have happened is that immediately this fundamentalist Christian woman would have taken a stand, would have stomped her foot and said, um, no, I'm not doing it. And uh, that's what uh, most playwrights would have done. And it's what's certainly expected. What's nice about this is that Deborah Jo Rupp uh, looks in her book uh, to see if she has the time to make the cake and says, no, indeed, she does not. And that's the official explanation why she's not going to make the cake. Not that it fools uh, Jen nor Macy, um, the girlfriend, uh, the fiance, uh, who, to exacerbate matters, is black while everybody else in the play is white. And... Uh, so we have a real conflict here, but I think it's really great that um, the idea of not wanting to state, I will not do it because you are, um, you are gay and um, I believe in the Bible, et cetera, et cetera, that speech doesn't quite happen. And uh, that's what I admire most about this play. So uh, what's going to happen? Um, a few surprises along the way, but the writing is so spectacularly good. Um, this lady really has a, such a wonderful way of dealing with things. I mean, there are so many lines that you say, oh, that's not really what's being said here. Uh, and that's the skill of Becca Brunstetter more than anything else. Wonderful cast. I also think Dan Daly, having nothing to do with the actor from the 40s, um, who, uh, speaking of that, was once the first choice for The Music Man <laughs> back in 1957. This is Dan Daly without a Y. Uh, e, um, so he plays Tim, uh, the husband of Della, who uh, certainly has his own problems, and he brings that up uh, quite a bit. So uh, don't expect a, a happy ending either in this play, uh, in the real sense of the word. Uh, it, it, it doesn't get warm and fuzzy in the way that you might expect or even hope. But it is very satisfying in its own way. A fine production. Lynn Meadow, um, who really uh, one of the great heroes of uh, late 20th century theater. Really, uh, those of us who remember when Manhattan Theater Club was um, in a, a, a reasonably woebegone space on East 73rd, was it? Um, to think what, what she's been able to accomplish. But not just uh, accomplish in the sense of business. Barry Grove certainly deserves so much credit for that. And look how long they've been together. But um, here we are. She's still a terrific director and brings exactly the sensitivity that is needed for this play. So uh, so I thought it was really, really fine, and uh, I enjoyed it immeasurably. All right, Michael, what did you think? 
Yeah, I'm more uh, of the mixed uh, feelings and uh, that I think Jan uh, was when we discussed it. I I liked a, a lot of the play. I had, this is one of the shows I had been looking forward to most uh, that we discussed actually uh, when we when we were at Broadway Con uh, because I had read about it and the subject matter sounded so interesting and I am a huge fan of Deborah Jo Rupp. Uh, I thought she was phenomenal in that show about Ruth Westheimer that unfortunately <laughs> was not a hit, uh, and I, I still don't understand that. Um, so I think there's a lot of good here. I, I think there are also some problems in the writing. Uh, to me, the two young women seemed often seemed more like ideas, uh, people spouting ideas than, than fully fleshed characters. And I also think, uh, you may completely disagree with me, um, it, it did seem clear that one of them was written specifically to be uh, an African-American and is being played by an African-American. And I just thought that it seemed to me that that was really one more issue on top of everything else, uh, everything else that's going on here that was not necessarily uh, – I didn't think it necessarily had to be covered uh, – you know, it just seemed almost like a checking the boxes thing. Uh, I I don't think it damaged the play terribly, but it 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 it. I, I just felt like it was unnecessary to have that on top of whatever's going on with this with this central conflict of uh, religious convictions against gay marriage. Um, so I felt that uh, also just to clarify. Uh, what Peter said is absolutely right about how, uh, um, for a long, for a while anyway, uh, Della, the the main character, uh, she just doesn't want to really come out and and say exactly what uh, what her problem is uh, with with this arrangement. But she does eventually, uh, you know, when when uh, when the the girlfriend confronts her, she she very much says I, I just you know I just think this is wrong so it the, um she does get there at some point and I I, I don't know I uh, um what what are you laughing at specifically <laughs> no because I understand how many times I've said I don't know when I don't know <laughs> you know I just identified with what uh your 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 feelings not necessarily in this play of course but nevertheless I've said so many times when you just don't know what else to say and you say I don't know so that's what I was laughing at there was um I, I thought uh, actually I I I think I disagree about the direction. I thought that uh, it seemed to me that the director was not of help to the two young women in making their characters seem real rather than uh, just two people on stage spouting ideas. Uh, I, I thought there was a lot of their dialogue that seemed to me very schematic and not very real. Uh, I would like to read the play uh, and see if I feel that way also. Uh, another thing is there, there was a lot more um, – vulgarity in it than I ever expected. Uh, there were these fantasy sequences where um, Della fantasizes because she's going to be, uh, she thinks she's going to be on this uh, TV bake-off show uh, contest thing, and she uh, sort of, uh, seems to be actually have, have a crush on the host of the show, and, uh, and we never see him, but we hear his voice, uh, and I guess he's voiced by, yeah, he's also voiced by Dan Daly, who plays uh, who plays the husband? Uh, 
So and and yeah, there were there was like some sexual vulgarity that came in there, and there's also the c word turns up at one point where I didn't expect it, and I just didn't seem all of peace with the rest of this play. Um, so I I thought that was odd, but I thought Deborah Jo Rupp was phenomenal as I expected her to be, and there is one very um, I found a, a very moving moment when uh, oh. Well, all right. I guess this might be a little bit of a spoiler, but uh, um, let's just say that Della suffers repercussions when it gets out that she is refusing to uh, make this cake for these two women, this wedding cake for these two women. Uh, there's a specific repercussion that she suffers. And, uh, you know, that's, that's very much in the news because we, you know, even just this week, uh, it wasn't, it was a very different situation, but the, the, the college admission scandal, uh, in, in Hollywood with Felicity Huffman and, uh, that other lady who, Lori Laughlin, I don't really know her that well. So I, I, I may have got her name wrong. Uh, yeah. but, uh, I went to high school with her. Oh did my you God. really? Yeah, I did. <laughs> oh my did you God. see this coming, James? No. <laughs> I did not see this coming. <laughs> Go on, Michael. I'm sorry. Oh, no. Well, just the you know, people losing uh, opportunities and, and people being, uh, you know, having been announced for certain projects and then those projects being taken away from them because whether it's because of charges of sexual abuse or or cheating <laughs> to get their kids into uh, into a really good college or uh, there's this whole uh, accountability thing that's that's really sprung up. And now it's it's fed by um you know, uh, what would you call it? I don't want to say mob rule, but, you know, now that we have the Internet and uh, Instagram and Facebook and uh, et cetera, uh, it's easy to to get a mob mentality, uh, and, you know, because everyone can just express their opinions immediately. And uh, I think that's what happens. You know, that's what, what you think happens to Della in the cake. Um and and to a degree, it also happens to the mother in the prom, um, who is uh, anti-gay as well. Yes. Uh, I went back to the prom this week, and um, and that point was made again. The same type of thing that happens in the cake to Della happens to the mother in the prom. And it does indicate um, that, in a way, these things are both cautionary tales about if you take a stand on this, there will be repercussions. Uh, you are not just going to get the immediate approval that you once got, that there are going to be people who are going to question your motives and wonder why you came out with what you came out with. Uh, so, uh, and I, I think that's very healthy and uh, very much needed here, there, and everywhere. When I was in Cincinnati, um, my friend Scott and Janet Kane were talking about the fact that uh, they're coming to see the prom in New York um, because they're not quite sure that it's going to be done uh, in the Midwest because it certainly doesn't flatter the Midwest. Um, granted, they're in Ohio, but still the, the, the line, people suck in Indiana, which is a lyric in the show, um, isn't going to play very very well anywhere near Indiana. And, uh, but uh, getting back to the cake, yes, uh, Della does uh, have to deal with consequences. I don't think she would have seen coming and certainly that wouldn't have uh, happened um, even 20, 30 years ago. Right. All right. So that is uh, the cake by Becca Brunstetter at Manhattan Theater Club. And it's running through March 31st. So uh, next up, uh, Peter, you got over to Irish Rep to see Juno and the Paycocks. So tell us about that. 
Well, uh, ironically, uh, being a fan of musical theater, it was impossible for me to watch Juno and the Peacock without thinking of Juno, the 1959 musical by Mark Blitzstein that only ran 16 performances, but does show up here and there. And luckily, Goddard Liebeson gave us a cast album. And it was sort of fun for me to see where the songs were and where they weren't. Um, and if you know Juno at all, you will come across, uh, you will come away with a feeling that uh, Mark Blitzstein really just didn't go by a template and um, and just throw in songs here, there, or anywhere. Uh, he really rethought the play entirely. But anyway, the play is the thing, so I'm going. <laughs> I should talk about that rather than the musical. But anyway, um, so here's Neil Pepe, who we know from the Atlantic Theatre Company, directing uh, Juno and the Peacock by Sean O'Casey. The Irish rep is doing a Sean O'Casey season, which is going to last through May 25th. I'm happy to say, and uh, it's going to include. A lot of free readings, um, lectures, uh, film screenings even. Uh, but shows are being done in rep. So if you miss Shadow of a Gunman, you haven't because it's in rep with, uh, with Juno and the Paycock. Now, Juno and the Paycock, uh, actually, Paycock is a term she uses for him. Uh, Juno is a woman. Uh, she was born in June, and as the play explains, a lot of the, her life um, has been centered in June with giving birth to a kid in June, et cetera, et cetera. So she, that's really her nickname. I don't think we ever find out what her real name is. Uh, but for the longest time, she's been married to Captain Jack Boyle. And Captain is in quotation marks because he really does not deserve the appellation, as it certainly uh, is revealed as time goes on. But he wears a captain's cap, and he wants people to believe he really has had this career at sea, which really isn't true at all. He is full of it. He lies at every turn, and she long ago stopped believing him. No matter what happens, uh, she does not give him the benefit of the doubt, and we see that she shouldn't because we, we see things happen, and then he denies them, but we've seen them happen. So it's not a good marriage. Um, but we are in Ireland, and we are in Ireland um, in um, 1922 when the Irish Civil War was happening, and it's really taken its toll on this family, specifically uh, with uh, the son, Johnny Boyle, who uh, unfortunately um, not only had problems with his hip through the um, conflict, but actually lost an arm. And uh, he is just miserable, as all of us would be if that had happened. He has not gotten over it, and um, he really is very resentful that the Irish um, army wants him to do even more, even though this has happened. As he said, haven't I done enough for Ireland? And they say, no, you haven't. You know, um, they they compare him to um, uh, a kid named Tancred, that's his last name, who uh, died. Um, you know, he died. You only lost an arm. Um, and the only isn't even in quotation marks, but that's the way they feel. So that really hangs a real gloom over the play. And uh, but then there's Mary, his sister, who is really pursued tremendously um, by um, a character named Jerry, who really loves her to the nth degree. Or does he? We will find by the end of the show whether or not he really, 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 really loves her. Uh, I'm not going to say why, but um, but I will say that when I saw Darlin' Juno, the musical uh, rewrite that was done at Longwalf in 1976, I can still see Victor Garber playing the part of Jerry uh, when he delivers a line that is so powerful uh, when confronting Mary, uh, when he really is proposing to her and then changes his mind. That line is in the original play, and certainly 
uh, Harry Smith, who plays the part, does it very, very well here, too. So uh, so this family has a lot of problems. Things just get worse and worse and worse. And the problem is really more that they find out that they've come into a great deal of money. So that should be great, huh? Uh, coming into all this money. And, you know, it's funny. Uh, I thought of Neil Simon while watching this play. Um, obviously, Sean Casey got here first. But I don't know if you uh, realize that so many Neil Simon plays rely on the fact that um, the first act set is very different from the second act set. Um, think of Barefoot in the Park, which it's uh, an empty apartment. Then when the curtain goes up for the second act, it's a beautiful apartment. The Odd Couple, the same thing. It's a woebegone place, but after Felix gets through with it and when the curtain goes up in the second act, it's very nice. Well, the same type of thing here. They come into money, so the second act, um, not that you have an intermission here in this production, but uh, suddenly the apartment is substantially better looking as a result of all the money they came into. We'll see what happens with that money. Uh, there's a bit of a surprise there, and I think uh, I, I can't recall any play where people come into money and then don't have money that have the same reason for losing the money that they do here in, um, in Juno and the Paycock. Anyway, I haven't talked at all about the two uh, lead characters, and I have to because Marianne Plunkett, whom we love, uh, who's so wonderful in Me and My Girl, um, has now aged into Juno, and uh, she really does a wonderful, wonderful job in uh, dealing with uh, all the chaos that is going on in her household. Even the joy that she has is tempered by a lifelong careworn existence. So, um, but she's real um, down to brass tax type, and she does it very, very well. Karen O'Reilly, uh, certainly a mainstay of this company, needless to say, um, been with them now and forever, is uh, Captain Jack Boyle, and it seems like it was the role he was really born to play. He had to wait a while to get there, but he certainly uh, does a spectacular job in this essentially a moral man uh it, it doesn't occur to him to uh to be moral uh to do the right thing um he has no problem with his lies or the way he's conducting his life uh it just doesn't matter to him at all uh, any of the rules of society they just don't apply to him um so is he lovable uh, I, I guess that all depends on who you are, but um, a lot of people have more patience with him than others will. But, uh, but nevertheless, he doesn't make you hate him in the way that so many characters of this ilk make you hate them. Um, so, uh, so that's partly O'Casey, of course, but it's also Karen O'Reilly who does a, a wonderful job. I also have to point out Maisie Madigan's character, played by Terry Donnelly, just a next-door neighbor who comes in and uh, Terry Donnelly does a wonderful job of being this um, somewhat grounded, but also uh, <laughs> a, a lady who's out for a good time and uh, wants to uh, sing and enjoy herself and what have you. But she has a scene at the end of the play where there's no singing at all, believe me, and she does it extraordinarily well. So we have both uh, the happy-go-lucky feeling early in the play and the not-at-all-lucky feeling at the end of the play. So this is a very, very good production, and I'm delighted that Irish Rep is concentrating on Sean O'Casey. And I certainly look forward to the next one, The Plow and the Stars, which I haven't seen since 1968. And I'm really looking forward to seeing it again because I don't remember it at all. And here's a chance to get to see it. And uh, – Chances to see the plow and the stars don't uh, grow on trees, needless to say. Um, probably they grow on trees as many trees <laughs> as we have on city blocks. But uh, anyway, so uh, pay attention to what's going on in Irish Repertory on uh, West 22nd Street. 
Okay, so that is uh, Juno and the Paycock, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Mike, I haven't seen this production yet, but you know, I noticed. Um, it sounded from it. I checked, and do you know that the Irish rep uh, did the show as recently as 2013? Did they? Yes, with Mary Mallon as Mary Boyle, J. Smith Cameron as Juno Boyle, uh, John Keating as Joxer, Ed Malone as Johnny Boyle, and, and Kieran O'Reilly as Captain Jack Boyle. Uh, so, But, you know, it's fine because Juno and the Peacock is considered a classic of Western literature, and so I – you know, it's, that's fine with me, and uh, I'm sure that the Irish rep uh, does it as well as anyone. So that's really great. Uh, it's amazing to me. This is the first time I've ever seen it. Uh, I really thought I had seen it before, wow. but uh, yeah, it's it's really escaped me over the years. Uh, there was a very good, I'm told, Broadway revival, I think, in '88, and um, for whatever reason, I missed it. Uh, so I was very grateful to have this first chance with it. Ironically, I've seen Juno the Musical twice, but this is the first time I've seen Juno and the Peacock. Oh, three times, in fact, now that I think of it, because the Vineyard did a production with Anita Gillette that was really quite wonderful. Uh, so, yeah, three times I've seen the musical. So, anyway. Okay. Michael, uh, you got over to the Women's Project WP Theater and uh, saw uh, the production of what we are calling Hate Fork. Hate Fork. (laughs) So uh, tell us about this uh, play. Now, first, uh, to clarify, this is in the space that used to be called the McGinn Cazal. Uh, up on 76 and Broadway, but I, I guess it's not anymore because I don't see that written anywhere it, here. It's on, oh. on, the, on, the, on the press release and on their website, it says the McGinn Cazal Theater on 2162 Broadway at 76. Uh. So it well, says it in their, uh, in their stuff. So. Hmm, that, but not everywhere because I'm looking on the, the website right now and it says WP Theater 2162 Broadway and 76. Mm-hmm. So, all right. So maybe it's one of those. Um, I know recently we had some confusion over the Abingdon space. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. I guess uh, there's a lot of changes going on as far as theaters moving and yeah. or closing, mm-hmm. reopening uh, mm-hmm. in different spaces. So that's just something to to keep in mind when you when you're going to see an off Broadway <laughs> show. Make sure you know where you're going. Um, mm. But anyway, this is a very I'm, I'm really glad I saw this. I, I wasn't sure what to expect. It's a two hander by Rahana Lou Mirza, and it is playing at that space we just mentioned from March 3rd through the 31st uh, presented by WP Theater and Colt Kerr excuse me, Colt Kerr, C-O-E-U-R and directed by Adrian Campbell Holt and um, what it is uh, let me just read uh, the the description here, Uh, passions ignite when Layla, an intense literature professor accuses Imran, a brashly iconoclastic novelist of trading in anti-Muslim stereotypes, but as their attraction grows into something more they discover that good sex doesn't always make good bedfellows conflicting cultural identities collide in this thornily clever antidote to a quote unquote meet cute romance which reunites uh, hero stars Kavi Ladner and Sendil Rabamurti um, this is uh, yeah a, a really intriguing example of people who uh, who maybe it seem at first it might seem that they're oil and water and they could easily wind up uh, really hating each other but I think they um, as different as they are in their in their views uh, on, on very important matters uh, they they also appreciate it 
each other's intellect. And on top of that, they're both gorgeous. So, <laughs> so uh, there's that incredible tension that can result. And in this case, the tension uh, certainly is acted upon. Uh, and uh, this was, I, I guess the running time was about an hour and a half, maybe a little longer, um, maybe an hour 45, no intermission, but it did not drag at all. Uh, I, last week I discussed a Jewish joke, which is a one-person show uh, uh, that – uh, Phil Johnson is acting down on 42nd Street, and I talked about how inc incredibly difficult, in my view, it is to do a, a full-length one-person show. Uh, I would say um, that a two-hander is is at least somewhat easier because you do have another actual person to relate to and uh, and act off of on stage. But you know, it's still uh, it's still quite a quite a workout it's a lot of lines and um you 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 also never have a moment when you're off stage this play does not have any monologues it doesn't have any point where only one of the characters is on and uh you know just talking to the audience and to give the other one a breather it doesn't have that at all it's really the both of them on stage for the entire length of the show um and uh i i you really uh, my hat is off to both of these people, Kaby Ladmir and Sendhil Ramamurti. Uh, they, um, they, they just, they, they retain our interest through the, through the whole, through the whole time period and without, without it seeming to drag. And, and they really does seem like their relationship is very, very real. And you, you do get the idea that they're actually, meeting for the first time and you sense the these very conflicting emotions that they have uh on their first meeting because there's so much going on with the sexual attraction on one level and the uh, you know the political and and uh ideological disagreements on the other and and um i wouldn't say that uh you know, I mean, we, we we may guess that they're going to get together on some level, but there's a lot of other stuff that happens that I would say is unpredictable. Uh, we don't know if it's going to last, uh, and we certainly don't know how it's going to end because there's a lot of discussion as to uh, whether they're going to work together on a project, and that's something that does not become clear uh, for a very long time. So I would say um, that this is a very worthy uh, – another <laughs> worthy example of an off-Broadway show um, that uh, is something you would you would probably never see on Broadway unless maybe you had two movie stars in it. Uh, you don't have two movie stars here, but you have, I guess, two TV stars, and they are doing an excellent job in this play by Rihanna Lou Mirza. Hate well, the actual title uh, is written as H-A-T-E-F asterisk – Asterisk K. So I think we know what the word is supposed to be. <laughs> I'll tell you what I hated, since we're talking about hate. Okay. Um, she's extraordinarily obnoxious at the beginning. Extraordinarily. Now, you might say, well, it's because she has her principles and she feels that he sold out his uh, just to have a career. But there is a moment where she goes over to a shelf and says, oh, you have crystal wine glasses. And she oh, yes. throws one on the floor and breaks it. 
Now, um, I'm sorry. That is not, no, I'm not sorry. That is not what you do in somebody's house. You don't have the right to do that, uh, to make the statement that you have all this money and you got it through terrible means. You don't break a glass. And frankly, he doesn't even react to it at all um, that that happens. And um, so I parted company right that in there with her. I mean, I, two wrongs don't make a right. And for her to be doing something like this is just horrendous to me. And I hated her like that. I understand the attraction between people who hate each other who still have a sexual attraction. Right. Yes, I I'm not quarreling with that at all, at all. But boy, did I just like this lady. I don't dis. I don't disagree with that. I thought um, you may. I thought it was staged. Uh, that moment was staged in such a way that I wasn't supposed to be sure if she broke it or just dropped it. But I think it would oh, be. Oh, she flung it on the floor. Oh really? <laughs> yes, I, yes, she did. I wonder if uh, must have blinked. Oh, but, okay. Uh, you know, okay. That's that's a definite act. And uh, and the damn thing stayed there the whole show. I mean, the the shards of glass. I mean, it was just amazing. I mean, nobody cleaned it up. So yeah. And at one point, he walked over uh, that area in bare feet. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I was thinking maybe it, it was something you know, well, made specifically to shatter on stage and not be dangerous. But yeah, mm, probably. Maybe uh, she was signaling to him that she wants to marry him in some sort of Jewish ceremony. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> All right. Uh, so that is Hate Fork um, <laughs> at the theater up on 76th Street. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, all right. Next up, Peter, you got a chance. Uh, Penguin Rep and In Proximity Theater Company uh, presented a production of After, a play called After at 59 East 59. Our favorite theater that we don't have to describe where it is because it's in the title. So, uh, Peter, tell us about this. Well, this is a new play by Michael McKeever, uh, who wrote Daniel's Husband, a play I admired greatly. And uh, for a while, you wonder if indeed um, Michael has seen the play God of Carnage, because it really starts out being very much like God of Carnage. Because here we are, we're in, a, we're in a, an apartment where a couple lives, and another couple comes over to talk about the fact that um, the first couple's um, son uh, has been intimidating their son. It, it, granted, in God of Carnage, there's actually been an incident where um, an injury took place. That hasn't happened here. This was a threat that um, the son made. And um, so you're reminded of this with the two parents each sticking up for their own child. Makes perfect sense, you know, trying to indicate that it was your son that was the problem. No, it was my son who was, etc. So. Um, so that's the way it starts out, and you start thinking, hmm, is this all there is to it? Uh, but no, uh, it turns out to be far more engrossing than that, far more engrossing indeed, and far more chilling. Uh, there are times when you – the famous expression about having your heart in your mouth – uh, be prepared to have it there for a long time. This gets pretty galvanizing, and uh, it goes in directions you may not expect. There is a tiny problem um, because there's a lot of talk about guns in this play. And one couple, um, especially the wife, um, complains about the fact that um, this home they're visiting has guns on display because um, the husband in, is a hunter and she's very anti-gun. 
And yet, well, I don't want to give too much away, but nevertheless, um, guns turn out to be uh, significant in uh, in their life too, and in a way that I didn't quite believe. Aside from that, really, this guy knows how to tell a story, and he really did an extraordinarily good job in keeping us interested and saying, "My God, what's going to happen next?" And, and you know, any playwright who can do that really is is worth his salt and pepper. So. I, I was tremendously impressed by it, and I really thought that um, the cast was excellent beyond belief. So um, Mia Matthews plays the the rich wife along with her husband, Michael Frederick. Um, that's the actor's name. They uh, really did a fine job in playing this uh, hoity-toity couple without being obnoxious about it. They're really trying to be as down-to-earth as they can be. Um, in God of Carnage, we have a little bit more of a class distinction thing going on, especially with the guy on the cell phone at all times being this tremendous tremendous executive and the other guy being, um, you know, a more workaday type of uh, person. That dynamic is here too, but the social inequality really doesn't come up very much. It does come up a little, but not nearly as much as in God of Carnage. And because they're really here to discuss the matter and not really um, use um, I'm privileged and you're not, or I'm underprivileged and you're not, uh, that isn't as much an issue here because we're really centering on the two sons and what's happening to the two sons. You don't see them. Um, So Denise Cormier and uh, Bill Phillips are excellent as the couple whose uh, child has been threatened. And um, I think really the casting director here, whoever he or she may be, really did a phenomenal job. And just from the way these people look, you knew everything about them the second you saw them. So uh, so I really thought that was great. There's also a fifth character, uh, Jolie Kurtzinger, plays her, and that's uh, the sister of the rich woman. And uh, she's there sort of to referee, though, of course, the other couple feels that that's unfair fair because obviously the sister is going to be on her sister's side. Uh, but the thing was that um, she used to be friends uh, with the um, the other couple's uh, wife and um, and that didn't quite work out. We're not really quite sure why, but, uh, but it, it's a little strange to have her there, but she does serve a function as the play goes on. And uh, you certainly don't resent her being there and you certainly don't resent that Jolie Kurtzinger is playing her because she does a really, really fine job. So uh, this is a gripping 90 minutes, very much so. And uh, while some are going to accuse it of being a little melodramatic, which it occasionally is, this is a solid play. And uh, I really do think it's another triumph for 5090s, 59 to uh, have another winner. This, by the way, is at the main stage theater, uh, which is certainly the most comfortable of the three that are there. And, uh, and commodious as well with wonderful sight lines, stadium seating. So, uh, so I think it's worth a trip over to 5090s, 59th. Uh, as James said, one of our favorite places, uh, who, <laughs> the busiest theater in town. And we're very happy that uh, it is. We never have to look up the address. <laughs> never. Yep. And uh, another winner for Joe Broncato at Penguin Rep. Yeah, indeed. Yes, yes, he did a fine job of staging it. All right. Uh, Michael and I got over to Town Hall last Monday night to see Jeremy Jordan uh, have a little concert and chat with Seth Rudetsky. So, Michael, why don't you get us started on that? Well, <laughs> I just thought it was one of the best evenings I've had lately. He is so incredibly talented. And this format that Seth Rudetsky has, uh, where he sits down uh, with people like 
Audra McDonald, Kelly O'Hara, and Jeremy Jordan, and they literally sit in armchairs and talk for a while, and then the talent gets up and performs uh, some of their some of their best material while set plays for them. Uh, I, I Seth has been doing this for a really long time. He used to do a series at Don't Tell Mama called. Uh, sets chatterbox um and those i think were a little more emphasis on the talk uh and a little less emphasis on the music but uh the the ones that i've seen him do at town hall and then previously uh up in provincetown at the art house there uh he's he's been doing a similar series up there with people like patty lapone and and audra and then these this really high level of incredible Broadway talent that we're talking about. Um, it's so great because uh, when you when you get people, uh, and there seem to be so many of them who are, are not just talented, incredibly talented in terms of being able to sing and act and project to a, you know, to an, to an audience, but also uh, really smart, funny people with lots of uh, interesting and funny stories. Uh, it, you know, it's, it, uh, to me, it's a completely different um, talent to be able to talk like that in front of an audience. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily follow that just because you're able to uh, play the lead, in, you know, in, in a scripted show, it, it doesn't, necessarily follow that you're going to be interesting or charming or funny when when you're talking off the cuff on on stage with somebody so um i guess you know i mean obviously seth can tell uh you know uh just because he knows these people if if he thinks that they're going to do well in that situation and certainly jeremy did he um he was very very funny and char and charming and i one thing i appreciate about him is i think he's got a little bit more of an edge to him uh than some other uh people he he will he will not um, avoid saying negative things uh, or, or uh, you know me being a little snarky uh, when he, when he feels it's necessary in discussing past situations like for example his uh, his uh, dealings with Arthur Lawrence on the Broadway revival of West Side Story so that that you know certainly lent it an extra level of interest because you don't always see that but um aside from that jeremy uh who i, I i've i've said before on this podcast i first came across him of all things in a production of the little dog laughed um uh, up in Hartford, I think it was, uh, and I, nobody at that point nobody knew who he was. He had, he had not done anything else, and then he just started to appear in all these places and, and get these high-profile gigs. Uh, he was, uh, I think, his Broadway debut was in Rock of Ages, and then he was the alternate uh, Tony in that West Side Story revival where he was doing uh, two performances a week uh, as Tony, uh, at least at some point. Um, and then uh, then suddenly came Bonnie and Clyde and Newsies at practically the same time. And I guess from there, the rest is history. But also Jeremy puts me in mind of uh, Stephen Pasquale, that these, these are two examples of two guys who have like phenomenal voices, uh, two of the best Broadway musical theater voices we've heard in 
forever, I think. Uh, and But we don't see them as often as we might uh, doing musical theater because they have also had great success in TV. Uh, Stephen Pasquale for years was on Rescue Me. Uh, and then Jeremy, um, I mean, he, he wasn't <laughs> – this didn't occupy him as long because the show wasn't a hit, but he was on Smash. And um, one of the highlights of his – uh, performance at the town hall with Seth Rudetsky the other night was his performance of the song Broadway Here I Come by Joe Iconis, who, of course, is the creator of Be More Chill, which is currently creating a star on Broadway. Um, and that uh, that apparently is a performance that has gone viral uh, from the time when Jeremy sang that song on the show. Smash and to hear him do it live was really was really really something special, and he um, did a lot of other signature tunes. I guess you would say he did a song from Bonnie and Clyde uh, with a, a volunteer from the audience uh, to play the role of Clyde uh, of Bonnie. <laughs> excuse me. And uh, although she all she had to do was sit there, uh, it was kind of risky because the poor girl. Uh, was so so nervous she could not stop laughing. Um, so he had to deal with that, and the audience uh, they really enjoyed it. But it it got, it got a little a little risky there for a moment. Um, then uh, Jeremy also did a uh, I don't know what maybe I hate to say this, but it, it might have been the definitive something's coming from West Side Story. Uh, he sang "Moving Too Fast" from the last five years, which of course he he played that role in the film version, which I love, and um, he. Uh, did a beautiful rendition of a song that's not usually sung by a man. Uh, she used to be mine from Waitress. Uh, that was gorgeous. And uh, he even did a little bit of impromptu, um, a, a little bit of Summer Nights from Greece, which was one of his early roles, Danny Zuko in Greece. Uh, I forget where that production was. Uh, I think maybe in college, college or high school. And, um, then this was really ballsy. He, uh, his encore was Bring Him Home from Les Mis, sung uh, Unplugged. Uh, and of all songs to choose, because, you know, it, it's, it's meant to be sung in a beautiful, soft falsetto, if that's the right word, or head voice. And he, that's how he did it, the bulk of it anyway, except the middle part, which is more full. And you could hear a pin drop. There, there was complete silence in town hall while he filled that really quite large uh, auditorium. I think it's maybe, I think it's like 1,200 seats um, with that beautiful, beautiful voice singing that gorgeous, gorgeous song. It was an extraordinary night and, um, and uh, James is there to attest to it. I well, town hall is fourteen hundred ninety-five seats. Oh, oh excuse it's me. really town hall, and well, that surprises me. I would have said twelve hundred as well, Michael. And yeah. uh, I've been off by five because I've been quoting fifteen hundred. Mm -hmm. So, one of my th this concert was so good. <laughs> I, I just I just can't explain to you how good this concert was, and I was so excited about this. Not only because of how good it was, but how awesome the audience was. Not one cell phone went mm. off. Yes. They paid such close attention. There wasn't anything, anything during this whole hour and a half, hour 45 minutes, no intermission that 
uh, it was just everybody was transfixed and bring him home, uh, you know, without a microphone in a quiet head voice. Literally, you felt like you were the only person in the auditorium with mm. with uh, Jeremy and Seth. Mm. And I loved how much the audience was engaged with this with this thing. Um, and I, I also wanted to bring up that, uh, Michael, did you mention it? I'm sorry if I missed it, that Jeremy said he's coming back to Broadway. I did not bring it up, so feel free. <laughs> well, that's all that we know. So he yes. said, he said, I'm coming back to Broadway. I really can't tell you anything else. Uh, and oh, he did say, he said something like relatively soon or yeah. quite soon. And that's intriguing because that could mean anything. Yeah. I mean. uh, uh, so I guess let the speculation begin. Maybe he's got tickets to Hamilton. I don't know. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> so, yeah, that, that was uh, also really exciting to hear. And um, and a couple of days after the concert, concert was on Monday, I guess on Wednesday or Thursday, we heard that uh, Jeremy's going to be at 54 Below for a series of concerts this summer. Uh, and so, uh, and, uh, let me grab the dates here. I just had them uh, July 22nd to August 3rd. He's going to be a 54 below and, uh, tickets are going to go on sale on Monday, March 18th for F- club 54 members. And the general public tickets are going to go on sale March 21st, a couple days later, I guess Wednesday or Thursday, uh, they will go on sale. Uh, this was really, really I, I I was so excited to be present for this thing on a one night only, uh, and may Seth continue to do many many more of these. I, I, uh, Michael, do you know about this? It seems that Seth is doing these in multiple cities with similar guests. He's done them in multiple cities with Audra and with Kelly. I don't know if Jeremy's done multiple cities or not. Do you know anything about that? Well, I know, as I, I think I mentioned before, that uh, not today, but it's they're produced by Mar, Mar, this fellow named Mark Cortale, yeah. uh, who started doing them in, in Provincetown. Uh, you know, I guess uh, kind of uh, jumping off from Seth's chatterbox idea, yeah. but Mark started doing them in Provincetown, and, and now they have expanded to other cities. And he he and Seth are you know are behind all of these, and it's just they're just fantastic. I know. Um, that uh, the day of of, of uh, the the uh, event with Jeremy and said that that James asked me if I had an idea an idea what the running time might be because his wife was you said she was under, feeling a under little the under weather, the weather yeah. yeah and she wasn't sure if she wanted to go so I was so glad uh, to see her there <laughs> well because Jeremy I, Jordan was a shot of B twelve for her because she was <laughs> flying high after the concert she loved it. It was amazing. It really, really was. And this, and as I said, uh, when I reviewed the Kelly evening, I, I unfortunately missed the Audra McDonald evening at Town Hall. But it, you really do feel after one of these, like you got to know these people on a personal level, uh, you know, somewhat, because it's so informal and, and Seth is so good in, in drawing them out and letting them talk about what they want to and obviously not pushing them about things they don't want to talk about. And it, it's, uh, you know, it's quite an in-depth interview uh, because they spend a lot of time with the stories and the talk in addition to the full program of uh, – I mean, wouldn't you say – I didn't actually count, but I think Jeremy maybe it's, it was at least a dozen songs. Yeah, Absolutely, and and it's so 
you know, loosely scripted and very, very funny because both of both Jeremy and Seth uh, know how to command a stage. Uh, 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 Jeremy needed to use the boys' room in the middle of the of the, <laughs> of the show, and he was like, "Seth, I have to go, and I'm pee. leaving you on the stage alone." And Seth just, you know, said okay, and went off and did a whole other thing, and it was really fun. And I don't think it was scripted. I, I mean, who knows? But it, oh, it and didn't. also. And also, I, I'm pretty sure that when they did that little bit of Summer Nights, that that was completely yeah. spontaneous. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's yeah. very funny. So, yeah, Jeremy Jordan, 54 Below, July 22nd to August 3rd. Check that out. Uh, you'll see my wife there every night. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> and she said, I'm not going with her. She said she's taking her girlfriends with her. So, uh, also, at 54 Below, we have uh, coming up uh, Forbidden Broadway. Salutes Carol Channing with Christine Petty is... Uh, coming up uh this week is it michael or next week it's uh march 23rd saturday march 23rd at 7 p.m this this sounds like it could be really great actually um not too long ago i i was out with gerard alessandrini and he was talking about he he said i really want to do forbidden broadway salutes carol channing somewhere uh because she was uh she was First of all, uh, one of the stars that the the show uh, lovingly targeted most often in 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 so many of its editions, and then also she was she was actually directly involved at one point. She she went in and made an album uh, with <laughs> the Forbidden Broadway folk, which I, I highly recommend getting a hold of that. Uh, and and Gerard loved her, and she was so supportive of the show, and and it was a very much a mutual admiration society. So um, so Gerard and Christine Petty uh, are putting together a a, sh- a show at Fifty Four Below on on Saturday, March twenty third at seven p.m. Uh, and Michael West, uh, a longtime Forbidden Broadway stalwart, is also going to be in it. Um, so that is something that I, I I'm planning to be there, and I, I hope uh, check your you know check the calendar, see if you can get tickets. I I think it will be really really something that that will be worth it. Um, and then another thing I wanted to uh, tease that's coming. Well, no, I'm sorry, not coming up. It's already started. Is a play uh, that is being done at Theater for the New City called Still at Risk, uh, a new play by Tim Pinckney, who works for the Actors Fund as his day job. But he also is a, a very talented playwright, as I found out years ago when he wrote a play called Message to Michael uh, that I saw off-Broadway and that I thought was really a beautiful beautiful play that should have gone further, but unfortunately got one negative review from one influential person. I hope to see that again someday, though, because I, I really loved it. But this is a play um, still at risk, uh, and it's uh, the cast features um, uh, Rob, Robert Gomez, Christopher J. Hankey, Amy Hone, Ryan Spahn, and Jonathan Walker, and it's directed by Carl Andres. And it's about, um, let's see, let me just read a little bit here. Kevin, a surviving activist from the front lines of the AIDS crisis, finds himself struggling to find his place and purpose in contemporary gay culture. Um, that's the that's the uh, basis of it. It sounds like it might be maybe a little somewhat inspired by Larry Kramer and people like that. I could be wrong. I haven't seen it yet, but it sounds very intriguing, and I think it's going to be um, something that I'm really going to enjoy. 
Okay, so I think that that wraps it up for today. Before we get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayvideo.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to listen to us. iHeartRadio plays us, TuneIn plays us, Stitcher plays us, Google Play plays us. Anywhere that you can listen to finer podcasts, you can listen to Broadway Radio. Contact information for Peter from Michael and for me, as well as link to some of the things we've talked about today, can be found on the show notes at broadradio.com as well. All right, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? Yeah, the question was one of the most famous pieces of music quoted early in Act One of the 1961 musical A Family Affair is identical to a famous piece of music you hear deep in Act Two of Sweeney Todd. What is it? Well, it's the bridal chorus from Wagner's Lohengrin, better known as Here Comes the Bride, which are the first notes heard in the overture of A Family Affair and the last notes played by Mrs. Lovett at the conclusion of By the Sea in Sweeney Todd. Michael Portantier was the first to get it. Now, you might say, well, he had distinct advantage. He was listening to the podcast. No, actually, he wasn't, because remember, I pre-recorded it because I was in Cincinnati. So as a result, um, he was listening on his own to see how the show turned out, and so he was the first to get it. Uh, dismissing his participation, the first was, who else? Tony Janicki, who's becoming the Ken Jennings of Broadway radio trivia. Uh, he was followed by Kathy Jones and Donnie Jackson. So this week's brain teaser, because that's what it really is. Take the first word from a Russian play produced on Broadway in 1922. Then add the first word of the title of a Pulitzer Prize winning musical. Then add the last word of the title of a 2014 musical. Smush them all together and you'll get the name of a musical that ran one night on Broadway. What are the names of the four shows? <laughs> Okay, if you know that, uh, email us at triviaabroadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. I feel it's something something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue. I don't know. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, so on behalf of Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Videos This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Someone I've been praying for
for someone I think that I could be in love with someone 